Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, not everyone in the world this morning can say that they have the opportunity to hear from the King of all creation. Yet you have spoken in your word ages ago, and yet you continue to speak through your word to us this morning as your spirit applies it to our hearts and minds. And so we ask and plead that you would be with us, be present for that purpose, so that Jesus would be glorified in our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Our scripture passage this morning is Ezra chapters 5 and 6. And you'll find those on pages 392 and 393 of the Pew Bible. Ezra chapter 5 and Ezra chapter 6. We'll read a portion, the beginning of chapter 5 and the second half of chapter 6. Just to remind us of where we've been so far in this series, as we have begun to look at some of the principles of the ways in which God rebuilds His church or brings even spiritual renewal to His church. And in chapters 1 and 2, we saw how it is God alone who is able to bring His people back, to reestablish them and to bring spiritual renewal to them. And so the people of God are to respond and return to Him. Then in chapter 3, we saw that when God does bring renewal, that the first thing that is put in place is right worship. First things first, that not only corporate worship, but the worship of our individual lives before God and honoring Him in every aspect of our lives is central to the way in which we want to live for Him. And then looking at chapter 4 last week, we saw that when that begins to take place, the enemy does not stand by idly watching but rather brings attacks, and primarily the attack of discouragement. And this morning we see how God begins to remedy that discouragement. If you've ever begun a particular project around the house, whether it's fixing something or building something new or maybe a sewing project, and you've set it down for some time, when you come back to it, you know that you have to get oriented to it all over again. And there's even a a bit of angst of wondering, should I go ahead and do this now? Maybe I'll put it off just a little bit longer because I don't want to take the time and the energy to figure it all out again. In other words, there's new motivation that's needed. And that's what we see God does in these two chapters with the people of God. And so I'll read here beginning in verse 1 of chapter 5. Now the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Jerusalem, in Judea uh, and Judah in Jerusalem, in the name of God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. At the same time, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethar Bozani and their associates came to them and spoke to them thus, Who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? They also asked them this, What are the names of the men who are building this building? But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius And then an answer be returned by letter concerning it. And then what we have in 
The rest of chapter 5 is Tatnai's letter to King Darius asking the king to make a decision about the building of the temple. In the first half of chapter 6, we see Darius's response where he allows and permits the rebuilding of the temple and in fact curses anyone who would forbid it. And so we pick up the story in chapter 6, verse 13. Then according to the words sent by Darius the king, Tatnai, the governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar, Bozani, and their associates did with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edo. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. And the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites and the rest of the returned exiles celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. They offered at the dedication of this house of God 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. And they set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their divisions for the service of God at Jerusalem, as it is written in the book of Moses. On the 14th day of the first month, the returned exiles kept the Passover For the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together. All of them were clean. So they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, for their fellow priests, and for themselves. It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile, and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. And they kept the feast of unleavened bread, seven days with joy for the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. I remember after college, I had applied to work for Reformed University Fellowship at Clemson University. And the first few weeks that I was there were of challenging in a number of ways, but after about a month or so of my time there, I thought to myself, there's no way that I'm going to do the second year of this internship. It was a one year with an option of doing a second. And that's because as time went on, I began to realize that this is a much more difficult job, that is ministry, than I could have ever imagined. People will see all of my weaknesses. People will see all of my insecurities. They will recognize that I have no idea what I'm doing. That I don't know what I'm actually talking about when I'm speaking to them. And all of my own fears began to rise up. And I thought, well, what if I fail at this? And so my thought was initially, I'll just do one year rather than two And you can see how it was the work of the enemy to begin to enter into my mind and begin to bring discouragement so that I was no longer interested in doing the work. And really, that's what we saw in chapter 4 as the enemy sought to discourage the people of God in the rebuilding of the temple so that now they're no longer interested 
in doing the work. Discouragement leads to disinterest in the things of God. Disinterest in seeking God. Disinterest in laboring for God. Disinterest in the kingdom of God. And what we find here is really for a 17-year period, what began as discouragement led to 17 years of disinterest in rebuilding the temple. Which meant 17 years of disinterest in the presence of God being with His people through the outward visible sign of His presence, which was the temple through which He came and met with His people as they worshipped Him through the sacrificial system. And so they've become so disinterested in being with God that they're no longer interested in laboring for God. And that's the condition that we find the people of God in here. They've come to accept life without the promises of God and without the presence of God. And what God is going to have to do is really awaken them spiritually out of their spiritual malaise, you might say. Like when you wake up from an afternoon nap. You probably remember doing this. You've woken up from an afternoon nap, but you're only half awake. And you're not sure what time it is. Where am I? Am I supposed to be doing something right now? Surely there's something important that I'm missing and you feel like you're in a fog. And it's like you need somebody to come along and just shake you a bit and wake you up. That's what God's going to do in these two chapters is really shake the people of God in a way that wakes them out of their spiritual malaise that they're in. And what we're going to see in this passage, really the process by which God begins to bring his people out of that time of disinterest in him and disinterest in laboring for his kingdom. The first is this. He brings the conviction of His Word. The conviction of God's Word. Now we're told here in verse 1 of chapter 5, Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah the son of Edo prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem. And it says that they did so in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. He is over them. And in a way, the ministry of the prophets is to be reflective of the way in which the people of God in general live with God. We live under Him. His authority is over us. And it reigns over us in grace and mercy. And because it reigns over us, we are to do all that He declares because it is good and glorious and gracious. And if we were to turn to the book of Haggai, Chapter 1, here is what the message is to the people of God. It is, first of all, a message of conviction. Verse 2 of chapter 1 says this, The Lord says, Thus, uh, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. They've made some excuses. and Well, it's not yet time to rebuild the house of the Lord. Well, Why would they say that? Well, if we look on further, it says in verse 3, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house 
lies in ruins. Do you see what they've done? They have forsaken the building of God's house so that they can return to their own homes and begin to rebuild them and to take pleasure in them. In other words, they've, they've been watching a lot of HGTV and they've gotten a lot of ideas of things that they can do in their own home. They can, they can add on here. They can redecorate there. And their life before long has become consumed with their own worldly pursuits and actually with finding satisfaction with the treasures of this particular world. And you might say the more that we enjoy prosperity, the more it becomes difficult for God to actually dislodge it from our hearts as an effort to find satisfaction in this world. C.S. Lewis once wrote, prosperity knits a man to the world. He feels that he is finding his place in it, that is the world, while really it is finding his place in him. And that's exactly the condition of the people. They've been seeking their place in the world and before long what they haven't realized is the world has found its place in their hearts so that they want worldly treasures more than they want God Himself. And so Haggai goes on in verses 5 and 6 to say, Consider your ways. You've sown much and harvested little. You've eaten but never had enough. You drink but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. In other words, you can seek all the treasures in the world that you want, but it is like putting those treasures in a bag with holes. It will fall out of the bottom and you will never, ever, ever be fully satisfied. And so here he says to the people that what they have longed for They've gotten. They've longed for earthly treasures. And now they find themselves dissatisfied to the point where in verse 9, Haggai could say, or actually the Lord could say through Haggai, you looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, the Lord asked? Because my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Disinterest in God and in the things of God to find earthly treasures. You know, those who are disinterested in God never find a suitable time for God. Which is why Haggai had said, these people say to me, the time has not yet come to build the house of the Lord. It's never the right time if we're disinterested in God. You've known people like this. You've prayed for people like this that if only they would find some energy within them to read the Bible, to go to church, to begin to pray that, that maybe they will find an interest in God. Maybe they will come to salvation in Jesus Christ. And yet, even though they make promises to you, they never follow through because there's no actual interest in God. And sometimes that's the pattern of our own lives too, isn't it? Very easily this begins to take place when all the worldly treasures of life take the forefront. And, and we want to read our Bibles. 
We want to know them through and through. We want to have the wisdom of the Scriptures. We want a rich, dynamic prayer life. We want God to be close. And yet it seems as like we never have enough energy to pursue Him the way that we should. Because there's a sense of disinterest in Him. And what it is, is we've considered that the treasures of the world are far easier to mine, you might say, than the heavenly treasures. It's far easier to turn on the TV, isn't it? It's far easier to find something else to busy ourselves with than to actually pursue God and seek to know Him. Because the things of this world often have a quick payout. It's the spiritual equivalent of making a quick buck. While the things of God often take time to mature and to develop in us. Where over the course of years, God works His grace into our life so that we know Him better, but only as we give ourselves to knowing Him. And contentment with those worldly treasures is actually just what the enemy wants for God's people. So that they become... Sort of like when you drive along the road and you see a great tree with these massive vines that are growing up. That have been growing up for years and years and years. And they're so large, they're almost as large as the trunk of the tree. And they're pulling the tree down and they're deforming the tree. It's like all those worldly treasures begin to grow up as they take root in our lives and grab hold of our branches and begin to pull us down. And that's exactly what the enemy wants for us. We be pulled down by all of those things so that when conviction from God's Word comes as it came through these two prophets, we say to the Lord, Lord, I have the life I want. I've got it just like I want. Don't shuffle the deck of my life now. Things seem to be going so well. And what we don't realize is we've been entangled by those vines of worldly treasures. But you see, He's not going to leave His people like that, is He? And He's going to bring conviction through the Spirit as the Spirit applies the Word. But sometimes it's only after the fact, after God has brought conviction, after He has brought renewal into our lives, that we begin to thank Him because we can see clearly in hindsight how He has freed us from certain things. You may remember the movie put out a number of years ago now, Schindler's List. It's a true account of Oscar Schindler, who was a businessman. He was greedy. He was out for his own glory. And during the middle of World War II, he had a factory. And he sought to earn money and to make all types of earthly treasures until at some point there was a real sense of conviction in his soul. That there are people being shipped off to concentration camps to be murdered. And that he could actually do something about it by employing those people in his factories. And in a sense, saving their lives. And at the end of the movie, when he speaks about what he did and speaks to the Jews around him, he says, oh, if only I could have done more. If only I could have done more. And you see, when we come to the other side of that conviction and God has brought it into our lives and shown us our sin and 
how we've loved worldly treasures more than Him. We praise Him that He has loosed our grip on those things. And we only wish we had been able to do more. That He had done it sooner than what He did. And by sending His Spirit and His Word to bring conviction, what He's doing is giving us a, a holy dissatisfaction, you might say, with this world and what it can offer so that we would love Him and delight in Him more. Friends, we ought not to fear that kind of conviction that the, world, uh, that the Word brings. God doesn't simply want to wound us, but He wants to wound in order to heal and so what He wants is for us to give ourselves to the reading of Scripture, to sitting under the Word of God, to have God over us in His Word so that it would do its work again and again. And it only happens when we're willing to let it in and meditate upon it and allow God to do that penetrating work of taking His Word deep down in places where we dare not let it go that He can then begin to expose our hearts and show us every way in which we've been disinterested in Him and in serving Him. Now I think one thing that's ironic about this, don't you find it ironic that the way in which God begins to alleviate discouragement is not by giving us a pep talk? Not by telling us wonderful flowery things, but by bringing conviction. Why is that the case? Because you see, God knows that discouragement opens us up to finding some kind of immediate satisfaction in the things of this world. And until those things are released from our hands, we will not trust Him and serve Him. And so the first thing that He has to do to actually get us out of a state of discouragement is to bring conviction into our lives. But you see, God is never interested in just shaming His people with conviction. But the second thing He does here in the process is bring us to a state of assurance of His promises. And so the second point is the assurance of God's promises. Now in the book of Zechariah, where Zechariah prophesies at this particular time about the rebuilding, we're told in chapter 1, verse 16, Therefore, thus says the Lord, God is speaking to His people as they are looking at the ruins of the temple, and He says, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. It's as if God is saying to His people, Now try me. Try me and see what I will do. If you will only trust me that what I declare in my promises is real, you will find that I pour out blessings and I will fulfill all of my promises to you. And that's exactly what they do in verse 2 back in Ezra chapter 5. Then Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel and Jeshua the son of Josadak arose and began to rebuild the house of God. They began to rebuild what was torn down because they trusted in the promises of God. And what we're told in verse 5 is that the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews. And they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius. In other words, the officials in Jerusalem did not stop the people of God. Why? Because God is fulfilling His promise to His people. And when 
Tatnai sends his letter to Darius to investigate the matter, he includes at the end of chapter 5 by saying, let the king send his pleasure in this matter. Now the response comes back from King Darius after he investigates the matter and he says in verse 7 of chapter 6, let the work on this house of God alone. Leave it alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild the house of God on its site. And so the king declares his pleasure. But do you see what's actually happening? The king, with a capital K, declares his pleasure. And he makes it the king with a small k's pleasure. Why is that? Because the heart of the king is a water stream, as Proverbs says, and the Lord directs it wherever he wishes. God is sovereign over this. And when he has promised, he will fulfill all that he declares. And so because of that, the people work industriously. Chapter 5, verse 8, Tatnai, he describes the work and he says this work goes on diligently and prospers in their hands. So that at the end of the building in chapter 6, verse 14, we're told that the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai and Zechariah. And that they finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus. They were living on the promises of their God. God had promised and He will see to it. Now friends, I think one of the greatest struggles in the Christian life is the fact that we do not experience in this life what we hope for and what we are promised in the life to come. And the Apostle Paul touches on this in the book of Philippians chapter 3 where he's been talking about attaining the resurrection from the dead and the fullness of knowing Christ face to face. And he says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. In other words, I have to wait now. And we, we long for it. We long for the promises of God to be fulfilled. We long for them to come to completion. We long for the resurrection. We long for the curse to be gone. We long for the struggle against sin to be gone. We long for the tensions in our relationships to be gone. We long for the illness and sickness of our lives and the lives of our loved ones to be gone. We want the promises. And Paul says, not that I have already obtained this, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me His own. The promises may not be here in their fullness yet, but Christ has accomplished them through the cross and He will see to it. And because He will see to it no matter what discouragement we go through, when the assurance that the promises of God are true in Christ begin to flood into our hearts, then we live on those promises. John Bunyan was the writer of the great book, The Pilgrim's Progress. He was a Puritan preacher. He was imprisoned for 12 years for preaching the gospel. 
He would not deny Christ. And He would not give up the right to preach the Gospel. And He sat in a jail cell for those 12 years, knowing that His four children, the oldest of which was blind, lived with His second wife because His first wife, their mother, had passed away. And He heard news that His second wife miscarried after He was imprisoned. And He had these words to say about it. The parting of my, with my wife and poor children has often been to me in this place as the pulling of the flesh from my bones. Because I should have often brought to mind the many hardships, miseries, and wants that my poor family was like to meet with should I be taken from, him, from them. Especially my poor blind child who lay dearer my heart than all I had besides. Oh, the thoughts of the hardship I thought my blind one might undergo would break my heart to pieces. And yet there he remained because he was living on the promise of Christ and would not renounce the right to preach Christ and him crucified. And because of his experience there, he could write in the book, The Pilgrim's Progress, a scene in which Christian, the main character, is with Hopeful and they have been captured by a giant and they've been put into the castle of doubting. And there they are discouraged and they find themselves praying and it's in the midst of prayer that Christian realizes. He says, oh, what a fool I have been. And all this time I've, I've had this key. And Hopeful says, pull it out. And he pulls out the key. It's the key of promise. And he puts it into the lock of Doubting Castle and he turns the lock and opens it. And they are freed. And friends, it's when the assurance of God begins to come in. Because the resurrection is true and it is the guarantee of all the promises of God that our doubting is put aside and our discouragement begins to melt away because it's true. Jesus has done it. And He will see too all of His promises. Well, finally, certainly we have these Great convictions that come to us. We have the great assurance that God's promises give to us. But finally, there's the joy of God's salvation. It's interesting that after the temple is built and the worship is resumed, that three different times it's said of the people that they worshipped with joy. Verse 16, that they dedicated this house of God with joy. And then again in Verse 22, and they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them. See, the last part of the process of coming out of despair and discouragement is joy. When we become the kind of community that is the community of the cross, here as they gather together and and worship God through the sacrifices. It is pictured before them the salvation by grace through faith that only God can provide. 
And when we look back at the cross and we live upon the grace of God through the cross, we're a community of the cross that is filled with joy. Because God has set us free. You remember what David said in Psalm 51 after he was convicted of his sins? Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Joy because I'm free. My sins no longer weigh me down. They no longer cast me into the spit, the pit of despair. But my sins, not in part, but the whole are nailed to the cross. And I bear them no more. The community that is surrounding the cross of Jesus Christ and trusting by faith in Him is a community of great joy. And I think it's true of us no less than it was true of the Israelites in this particular day, that those joys come to us most clearly and shine most brightly against the backdrop of darkness and despair. Isn't that what has taken place? The joys are all the sweeter because the despair has been so dark. It's like when you go and Seek to buy an engagement ring if you're a man and you've bought an engagement ring for your wife and you go into the jewelry store and it's bright. There are lots of lights in there. There are lights on the case. They want you to see the sparkle of the diamonds. But when you choose one and you have the clerk pull it out of the case, they set it on a piece of black velvet so that all of a sudden that diamond shines brighter than ever against the darkness of the velvet. And friends, that's the way in which the Gospel works. It brings such heights of joy because the darkness is so dark. And it's in contrast that we begin to see and our hearts are filled with the kind of joy that comes from the salvation that only Christ can bring. Friends, you need to let this settle deep down into your hearts. You need to let the promises of God settle deep down into your hearts. Otherwise, it's like a rock that you throw on a river and it just skips across the surface and it never penetrates to the depths where the depths of despair are. And we need the promises of God to go down deep to where we despair. Down to the places in which we no longer have hope. Down to the places even where we've lodged those worldly treasures And we're holding on to them so tightly because if we let go of them, well then what do we have left? But Friends, we have Christ. And if we have Him, we have everything. David goes on to say in Psalm 51, after his joy is restored, then I will teach transgressors your ways. In other words, I will tell everyone about this glorious God of grace and of His ways with me. And one of the interesting things about this passage is that's exactly what begins to take place in verse 21. This Passover feast was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile and also by everyone who had joined them 
and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord. See, that joy becomes infectious. And everybody else around us wonders, now in the midst of a world like this, how could that person be so filled with an abiding joy that seems to transcend everything that he or she goes through? And all of a sudden the nations begin, begin to come to God because the way in which God brings the joy of His salvation to His people. Friends, this is the process in which God works. You see what He wants to do. We've put down anchors in this life. Anchors that hold us fast to this world and He's breaking the chains of those anchors so that we might rise to greater heights in joy and in praise to God. And this is the mark of our Heavenly Father's work in our lives. Isn't it what He did with the Apostle Paul to bring conviction of his sin, to bring assurance of God's promises and of grace, and ultimately, the joy of God's salvation. And this is the way God works with us too. And we need to open ourselves to the work of His Word in our lives so that these things are constantly and increasingly true of us too. Let's pray together. Oh, Heavenly Father, we love You and worship You and we pray this morning that we would have our hearts opened wide to Your Word, that its conviction would do its work, that its assurance of your promises would do its work so that ultimately they would bring such a joy into our lives that our interest in all the things that come from you would increase and our delight and labors for your glory would grow for the glory of jesus we pray amen